we're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Faisal Aitene. Faisal is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a professor at George Washington University. We discussed the political and economic problems facing Lebanon and how the uprising is challenging both the political order that's emerged since 1943, the power-sharing structure, and Faisal expresses his opinions on whether or not that model is sustainable in 2019. We also discussed the immense economic problems facing Lebanon and ways out, whether that means the World Bank or reports of France intervening, what it takes for Lebanon to manage itself as the economy continues to decline and what that collapse will look like, whether it's a managed bankruptcy or a complete meltdown. And we also discussed the role of non-state actors and how that affects both domestic and regional politics and whether or not Lebanon can properly govern itself so long as non-state actors dictate security and foreign policy concerns. And before we get to Faisal, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider a contribution through Patreon. The link is in the details box below. Any donation is appreciated. I'm trying to capture events as they unfold day by day and as the uprising continues into its fourth week. A view from Washington, with all that's happening in Beirut. I'm Rani Shatah for episode 43 of the Beirut Banyan with Faisal Aitani. <laughs> That's interesting. So because it's such a domestic occasion and there's no external chance, there's nothing, no one is calling on anyone else to help. It's actually a, it's really a, a, a call for accountability and, and fighting local corruption that it, in a sense, it's maybe the first time we've seen a truly domestic attempt at local reform as opposed to the geopolitical story we're all too familiar with. That's, that's very true, I agree with you. Usually our debates inside Lebanon, even if they kind of take on the trappings of policy debates, they're really kind of zero-sum competition between different sects and different 
groups aligned with different foreign powers. Uh, I think what's different about this, you mentioned, you used the word domestic. Uh, I think this is the first time I've seen the debate on the ground center around actual policy, you know, governance and the economics and political accountability, quality of life. Uh, it's not kind of maybe as sexy as you know, geopolitical competition, uh, but I think it resonates much more deeply. It has, uh, has a profound effect for many more Lebanese, and that's special, I think. And do you think, in, in, a, in a nutshell, that that's the reason there are so many people for the first time calling on the same thing, that, that the usual communal differences are not necessarily part of this story? To ask your question, yeah, I think Lebanese people uh, feel at some pretty deep level that uh, they are all together suffering from the effects of poor governance, corruption, dysfunctional politics, etc. I, I don't think that means that that's the only thing they're feeling, nor do I think it means that they don't feel any of the other older, more divisive sentiments uh, to do with sect or region, etc., which is what makes this whole thing a bit complicated, actually. You know, we've, we've said it uh, on another occasion, we talked about whether or not this is going back to, to 1989 or whether or not it's going back to the foundation of Lebanon. And I wanted to maybe just get your opinion on uh, what exactly is happening in terms of the, the demands on the street. Because we see, we see chants for a secular state. Uh, we see calls for accountability. We, we see dramatic cries for ending deep corruption and economic woes. But do, do you think that this is an attempt at, and I don't want to sound too... too uh, uh, almost too hard on the protesters, but do you think this is more cosmetic surgery, or or do you think that this is actually a, a true revolution in the sense that the the state is being challenged head on, and the state may may fall as a result? So the way I look at this uh, regime or state or whatever you want to call it, uh, I don't date it back to 1989 after the civil war. I date it back to the founding of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, this confessional system has been in place more or less in the same form for that long, yeah. uh, which is about more than 70 years now. And as a result of that, it's managed to both shape public attitudes about one another, about sectarianism, about politics, and to encroach on all the major institutions of the country. Mm -hmm. Getting rid of something like that, yes, I do think there is, uh, I think at the kind of romantic, emotional level, a lot of people will realize that this is kind of a rotten deal, and that it was not a good way to organize a country, and that if it did work to an extent very early on in Lebanon's history, it no longer answers Lebanon's political, economic, and social problems, not even nearly, and there's no prospect of it doing that. So I think, I think people at some level have realized that, uh, but having said that, uh, the regime is, is very robust. Uh, it's managed to uh, survive worse things than this. It survived 15 years of civil war. Exactly. Uh, and I said that it's, it's never faced a public, a mass-based political movement uh, targeting its political privileges. That's never happened, even, no matter how much people have felt it, perhaps, in the past. The other problem for the protesters... Mm -hmm. No, go ahead, please. The other problem for the protesters is themselves. I mean, the Lebanese population... Is, uh, is fed up with the regime, but at the same time, there seems to be some kind of ambivalence towards their own respective leaders. 
So they may, uh, you know, oppose the whole system and they want to get rid of it. And they want a sectarian system, but when their leadership comes under attack, you know, they feel anxious, defensive, reactive. I mean, witness, for example, the uh, the free patriotic movement after their politicians were targeted very vocally. Yes. Uh, at the beginning, many of them were essentially part of the protest. Mm -hmm. And then they got defensive and said, well, wait a minute, no, you know, it's not fair to put us in this position. It's not all these parties are equally bad, and we're the ones who started this protest stuff, you know, years ago as an anti-corruption movement. And so, you know, and, and quite a few people uh, rallied behind them. Uh, so, uh, so there's a lot of conflicting feelings. I think people are kind of tortured by the complexity of the situation. So it's not just the state itself that's robust, it's, there's so many other psychological barriers to getting behind a unified, maximalist political agenda. And because the, the tendency over history, especially the, the, the stretch you're describing, this really from the beginning, from the 1940s on, because the tendency has always been to fall back on the old power-sharing structure that Lebanon inherited, this way of dealing, whatever it's called, consociational democracy, consensus, confessional power sharing, whatever it is. Do you think that the average protester today sees that that in itself is a is a is the reason that there's so much corruption and the reason things aren't working? I mean, does it does it trickle down to the individual level that power sharing, the way Lebanon does it, is the problem itself, or is it simply more of we're broke? The, the country's on the brink of collapse if it hasn't already collapsed and it's a it's a monetary issue more than a more than a governing uh, structure I think people who are more politicized uh, people who've been thinking about this writing about it and talking about it for a long time mm -hmm. have specific points of views about the constitutional system yeah uh, personally I mean, speaking as a, just a Lebanese citizen and someone who's political, uh, I have concluded that uh, this system cannot deliver the public goods that, yes. uh, that a decent country deserves. Mm -hmm. Having said that, no, I don't think that, I don't think the crux of the emotion is that the constitutional system is bad. Uh, I think uh, I think what people have concluded is that the uh, the leaders are bad, uh, and, and, and therefore they have to go, you know, as such. Right. And that's why the slogan is all of them have to go basically uh, rather than you know, some kind of critique of, of, of the regime structure itself but if you hang around the protests and you sit down in, in the conversations people will tell you, you know, uh, we want a civic state as in we want a secular state where our identities are not determined by our sect uh, right. I think it's possible really, to feel all these things at the same time you know uh, I, I think you know this is the system we've known for decades, and to an extent, it's protected us from some of the worst excesses of Middle East policy, dictatorship, you know, complete sectarian cleanse, cleansing, and stuff like that. Uh, and you know, this is what's familiar, and people don't like to leave what's familiar. And it's also very hard to imagine in your head, in the abstract, a very different Lebanon that's like purely a civic Lebanon. But on the other hand, I think people, plenty of people, feel deep down that this is just a bad people and, uh, and something needs to change. Is it telling, at least in your opinion, that this kind of upswell happened at a time that the economy was really on the brink, that it did not happen a year ago or it didn't happen 10 years ago, that we've never seen this kind of unanimity 
or this kind of almost citizenry, if you'd like, that there's a Lebanese citizen now, which is a very unusual thing, where you don't see political party flags one bit. Or if you do see them, they tend to be just on counter-protesters, not, not the protesters in Martyrs Square. That is it, I mean, cause, because it's such an unusual event, and because it's so rare, is, there, is it fair to say that because the economy is crashing, that this, this is a byproduct of a horrible financial, what seems like a meltdown, as opposed to moving on into the 21st century and seeing that power sharing a la 1943 is just too old for Lebanon? That's an excellent question. Here's what I think it is. Uh, obviously, the context and an important context for this is the economic crisis. Uh, but there's something more specific than that. So countries go through economic crises. Uh, I think uh, the, the fact that we've got, that we're going through it and we're so dependent on foreign aid and we're waiting for foreign aid to come in and that foreign aid is contingent on us essentially applying austerity measures. Yes. Uh, and uh, and this is coming in a climate in which the people, to begin with, don't trust the government. And so when you come and you start imposing austerity measures on people, and already there's no goodwill towards the government, this is when you have this kind of backlash. It's not just the economic problem. And mm-hmm. then look at the kind of other very visible uh, humiliations, you know? The forest fires that we could have put out because we didn't budget for uh, right. firefighting equipment, for example. The garbage problem. Uh, the political class came together realize how bad the fiscal situation was, Pujin, let's tax people on this thing instead of cutting off back expenses or thinking of something more economically creative and risky. Uh, so I think it's really what, what causes a protest movement in my, in my political science understanding is a sense of uh, unmet expectations and a sense of humiliation. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think this is what the Lebanese people are feeling. Uh, so... Yes, it may have been triggered by an economic problem, but I think it's a bit more profound than that. And uh, and I think, therefore, I don't see it as a fleeting moment in time that's tied to a particular economic situation. Uh, I see it as a realization of the depth of the rot of the system we're living in. And maybe stepping out from the from the domestic uh, story and now going to a the, the regional or international layer, I, I know that, and we, we said it already, that it's, it, it seems at least primarily a local grievance issue and that the, these are calls for domestic reform. But is there, in your opinion, any geopolitical calculations given what's happening at the moment? And uh, this includes a group like Hezbollah in Lebanon, but, but is there, are there any regional layers to this story and do you see potentially a, a regional whether it's interference or, for that matter, involvement uh, in, in steering this revolution uh, in, a, in a different direction? So is there an element of it? Yes, there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean that that's what the Lebanese people care about, but there are important actors that are seeing it the, this way. For example, uh, in the United States, uh, although so far U.S. policy has been pretty hands-off, uh-huh. this issue, there is an important element of thinking within this administration that sees this as a potential potential space to to weaken Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. However, that actually happens. I'm, I'm not, not actually sure what that means, whether it's pressure on the makeup of cabinet, 
etc., sanctions, what have you. Yeah. Uh, on the Hezbollah side, uh, my belief is that Hezbollah from day one perceived this in that context uh, rather than as a Lebanon problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they saw it as a kind of opportunity to push back on Hezbollah and reverse some of its very hard-won political gains over the last few years, mm-hmm. which, you know, are the result of protests, assassinations, or, you know, just stonewalling, any of a number of things Hezbollah had to do to right. get there. Right. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and now, you know, because they see Iraq under threat from protests, the U.S. maximum pressure campaign ramping up, Israeli airstrikes in Syria, I think they look at it as a geopolitical issue as well. Uh, and uh, I think both of these, both of these parties are missing the point, uh, but uh, but that's how they reflexively are inclined to see Lebanon. They, you know, America sees Lebanon through the prism of Hezbollah, yes. and Hezbollah sees Lebanon through the prism of the resistance agenda, uh, and and so here we are. Uh, elsewhere in the region, you know, the other traditional player was uh, was Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. uh, but under MBS, I think the Saudis have quite a different leaning towards Lebanon. Uh, they've kind of written it off as, you know, Hassan uh, Hadid is unreliable, Hezbollah's too strong, and, you know, therefore forget about that mm-hmm. part of the world for mm-hmm. now and we concentrate on other things. Uh, so, but, but for now, I can say the U.S. Is, uh, has been generally hands-off and, uh, and cautious about this, uh, although they are, of the Hadidi issue in specific, uh, my sense is they are less wedded to Hadidi as prime minister than they used to be. That the that the Americans are are less wedded to Hariri. Yes. Yes. And, and okay, in that context, though, do do you see that Hezbollah's Hezbollah's grip on security matters or what on Lebanon's on foreign policy, do, do you see that as as necessarily threatened by what's happening, but both locally and through other means, whether it's sanctions against Iran or whether it's Lebanese banks being targeted directly. Is there a uh, is there a friction there where Hezbollah uh, sees its assets and sees its positioning uh, threatened in Lebanon? So not in a kind of forced or coercive sense. Where I see Hezbollah's problem is that Hezbollah decided after the Syrians withdrew from Lebanon in 2005 that the safest thing in the resistance project was to be well, rep- well represented in parliament and cabinet. Mm-hmm. have a veto power there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that they don't have to keep doing what they did in May 2008, which is when the hostile government took a decision to dismantle their telecoms network, they had to invade Beirut. Right. Uh, and it's an uncomfortable thing for them and not something they want to do all the time. Yeah. Uh, so for them, they have to have that layer of protection. Uh, the way I see it is this. Re- regardless of whether anyone leverages their situation to purposely weaken Hezbollah, and regardless of what the cabinet feels like, uh, I think any kind of civic movement that pulls loyalties and identity away from the respective sectarian patrons is a bad thing for Hezbollah. Uh, I don't think it's bad only for Hezbollah. I think it's bad for everyone. Right. Uh, but Hezbollah, like everyone else, seems to have fallen into the trap of is kind of not taking any of this stuff, not taking the potential of the street movements very seriously. If you look to Hassan Nasrallah's speeches when all this started, uh, you know, people criticized his second speech and his third speech. For me, the worst speech actually that Nasrallah gave was the first one, uh, in which basically Hassan Nasrallah said, in not so many words, that's very cute, get out of your system, nothing is changing, we're staying, no one touches the government. Right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, 
And you know, I'm sure that's what a lot of politicians were feeling. At least that Basala can say it, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, this kind of utter contempt for, for people on the street, we've seen it in the Lebanese political system for so long. And uh, I think that contempt overshadows what I think should be a longer-term concern for them, which is that if there is a birth of a civic identity in Lebanon, everybody's in trouble. And that's the truth. So, so in a sense, in a sense, aside from the, aside from the usual political class that that we're familiar with, and this includes Hadiri, this includes Aoun and Basil and and Birri and and the likes, that Hezbollah potentially has the most to lose, because their their reach is so wide, that their that their the infrastructure that they've set up and and you mentioned the the veto and and the arrangement that they've that they've constructed, that's under direct threat. From protesters that may not realize that that's what they're challenging head on. I mean, the thing is that Hezbollah is a much more ambitious organization than, than the other than the other players in this game. Yeah. Uh, the other players in this game want control of their constituency and they want to make money. Yeah. And they want to pass on that control to whatever their son-in-law, their son, whoever the closest relative that they trust is. Right. And that's it. Really. I mean, there are some kind of minor policy differences, you know, the PSO, the Jean Blanc has a socialist band, uh, there's kind of this nativist band in the Aoni party, the neoliberal one in Hadidi, but these are not huge differences. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, even on the Hezbollah side, I mean, it's not that huge of a difference on that level. Uh, but Hezbollah wants to play another game too, uh, which is they want to play the resistance game. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. playing that resistance game is a even at the best of times tricky and dangerous because of Israel, because of America, because of a thousand things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if the home front, especially on the level of Shia solidarity and support for the party, a certain level of economic well-being for the constituency, some cover from the institutions of the country, a good relationship with the military, look at all the things that have to be in place for Hezbollah to be able to do this. Uh, it's not easy. And uh, therefore, because they have higher stakes than everybody else, then yes, they're more exposed uh, yeah. to, uh, to major losses. Uh, the others can afford to compromise about more things when you have something so uncompromising as the axis of resistance. When it's challenged, we always see it hit back very hard and very quickly uh, because it wants to, it wants to cut that's interesting so in a way in a way the average protester may not know that that's what they're that they are battling not just the system they're battling the way lebanon has operated it's it's almost be it's an existential battle to a degree that that if one domino falls potentially the whole thing collapses and Hezbollah may see a need to intervene on, on the way that they did in 2008. That they may need to... They may be the, the institution that preserves Lebanon's power sharing at the end. In a strange way, uh, if, the, if, if this plays out how the protesters want it to play out, yeah. then yeah, we get to this point of existential crisis. Yeah. Uh, it's very possible that, that that actually may not be the next development. Mm-hmm. That they mm-hmm. may happen in 15 years or 20 and not now. Uh, but on the other hand, it's possible that our economy collapses in six months and everything goes to hell. Yes. Uh, so yeah. yes, Hezbollah uh, cannot, you know, cannot play the game purely by 
force, there's a, a very elaborate structure of interest mm-hmm. that, that, that supports the movement. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, no, even if people on the street don't realize that that's the implication, uh, that, that is the implication. I mean, that's, that's yeah. why Hezbollah's against it. Uh, at the beginning, I remember I was having some arguments with uh, a lot of people I respect, you know, Lebanon observers, uh, Lebanese or otherwise, uh, who we were trying to sort of game out Hezbollah's reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this is very early on, I mean, say say first couple of days. And, uh, and I said, uh, I'm like, look, Hezbollah would not tolerate this. No way. Uh, one way or the other, they'll find a way to, to hit back, whether it's through violence or not, or just partisan uh, blocking or things of that sort. Hezbollah has this kind of socioeconomic justice, you know, background to its ideology, mm-hmm. and that uh, ultimately that resonates with the party and with its constituency. I don't think that's untrue, but apparently that's not the most important thing. So uh, that's uh, that's one other media lesson. Well, let me ask you then, in terms of just American policy at the moment, do, do you think uh, this uh, decision to withhold uh, money to the Lebanese army, is that a an attempt at sort of forcing the Lebanese state to, in a way, uh, change its relationship to Hezbollah? Is it there that, we, that the Americans are reluctant so long as Hezbollah is entrenched? That they're putting the burden on local actors to, in a way, distance themselves further? So, let me explain a little bit more about this particular situation, because I, I think it was it was misread a bit outside the country, and it's inside the country, too, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't blame people for misreading it, but uh, what, what seems to have happened is from within the White House, one of the lines of funding that runs through the State Department was frozen. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was the first step in a particular direction of putting pressure uh, on the uh, on the LAF. The uh, military military relationship from between the U.S. and Lebanon is still very good, uh-huh. and the funding and training equipment that comes from the Pentagon is still there. So mm-hmm. we're not in a kind of extreme situation. Having said that, this freeze does not represent some kind of new policy consensus in the United States on Lebanon. I want to make that clear. This is coming from within the White House, where the sentiment on Lebanon and pretty much everything in the Middle East is very Iran-focused. Add to that the fact that this White House does not like spending money on anything. Right, right. So uh, it's these kind of interacting sentiments uh, that are... uh, It's not so much to get the LAF to do something. I think the sentiment is just like, you know, why are we giving these guys money if they are, you know, aligned with Hezbollah? And, uh, and not getting not giving America anything. Uh, now look, th- there's so much pushback on this domestically that it may actually just be canceled. Uh-huh, and be maybe uh-huh. back where we are. Because the Lebanese, one way or the other, the Lebanese government, Lebanese military especially, and the Lebanese lobby here, have built up a lot of goodwill with the United States government. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why they've been able to get away with a lot of stuff. Or 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 maybe not because now they're finally changing their mind on that. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. This is what I'm saying. I think the Lebanese need to be wary that that shouldn't be taken for granted because attitudes here are also constantly shifting. Yes, and we have a president and and administration that is very very anti-Hezbollah, 
very anti-Iran and prone to see things in that manner. Mm-hmm. And already the LAF relationship with Hezbollah is a complicating factor for everybody. So, you know, it's a, I wouldn't say it's a dramatic shift, but mm-hmm. it's something to watch. Now we're seeing just recently, the last 24 hours, we've seen uh, you know reports of France getting heavily involved, that the World Bank is putting pressure on a new government being formed within a week. We're seeing external actors giving their own opinions and advice on what they expect Lebanon to do in order to receive financial assistance. Is, is this a level of international, whatever you want to call it, uh, interference or, or aid that Lebanon cannot get its act together on its own, that it's still dependent on outsiders steering the ship in the end? finances are in such awful shape that uh, if we don't secure uh, the center package and the several billion uh, dollars in development funds from it, uh, I don't know what's going to happen to the country fiscally mm-hmm. uh, or, if we, or if we can even survive it. And I think the outsiders recognize that. I don't think this is so much them coming in and trying to change Lebanon or intervening, intervening as such. Mm-hmm. I think we've just been taking their money for a very long time. And right. beginning to realize that the money is going into a black hole, which is exactly what Lebanese people are realizing. So right, they're, right. Tr- they're caught between two things. They don't want Lebanon to collapse for a million reasons. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, they know that they can't just keep throwing good money after bad. Uh, and that's where all this pressure is coming from. I think personally, uh, they would accept something much less than you or I as certain Lebanese citizens would demand. Oh, s- sorry, sorry. The, the the World Bank or, or France for that the, matter? The, yeah, the donors, I think, would would be, would be accept something much lower than you and I would demand from the government. Uh-huh. Uh, so if, if you and I want government to, to stop being like thoroughly corrupt, uh, these guys are more likely to you know, accept maybe a 20% reduction in outright corruption and some reforms here and there. Because the truth of the matter is, especially in this time frame, this government, this government run by Hariri, Aoun, whatever it is that it's going to be, and we more or less know what it's going to be like, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, that government cannot deliver these reforms. And uh, doesn't want to and can't. So uh, it's, uh, in order for us really to do what the international community wants, we need the kind of government that the protesters have been asking for, which is a non, largely nonpartisan, technocratic government that enjoys some level of legitimacy and that can at least be legitimate enough to get people off the streets and get life going back to whatever normal is in Lebanon. Um, but uh, I don't, I'm, unfortunately, I don't see the political elites uh, recognizing that and, uh, and moving in that direction, at least not yet, but we'll see. You know, it's, an, it's a rare occasion, I think, where Lebanese standards are higher than the World Bank. Right. <laughs> Faisal, I really appreciate your time and I appreciate your persp- your perspective from Washington on, on both domestic issues, geopolitical issues, and just uh, maybe the, the broad view of, of where Lebanon fits in on a, on a lar- larger issue when it comes to not just the way this country operates, but maybe the way the Middle East is fundamentally changing. And uh, uh, it's, it's a very complicated story and I, I appreciate you unpacking it. So, so thank you.
Washington with Faisal Aitene. To stay updated as episodes are released, simply subscribe to your preferred podcast platform or find us on our YouTube channel. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Thank you.